0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: So we'll have small groups later tonight. Um, but it might be nice, uh, I have some things I'd like to share about tranquility, but it might be nice just to check in briefly, maybe three or four people, about the set. Um, and about the this formula that's used throughout the buddhist teachings of seclusion dispassion cessation letting go as a way of developing all of these wholesome qualities the seven factors of awakening but also it's the whole process of awakening itself because you know one of the simple formulas and you can share in terms of our sit tonight, it matters what the mind is paying attention to. So the first thing, you know, it's a bit shocking to us because we have sometimes this more superficial sense that we should be able to just let the mind do what it wants to do. But I don't know about you, (laughs) When I let my mind do what it wants to do. You know, it likes to worry, it likes to think about things. It loves to solve problems. Right? It loves to categorize. The mind has all of these tendencies, and some of those tendencies have been really quite useful through evolution in terms of the survival of the species, but not necessarily conducive to happiness and peace. So now what we're doing on purpose in our training the mind, instead of just following the mind, we're training the mind to, and to see what the effect is, right? So you don't have to believe this is actually good. You can just check it out for yourself. But we're training the mind to stop doing what it normally does. But you know, those of you who raise kids, the easiest way to stop your mind from doing something is to give it something to do. If you just sort of hover over your cat, and tell it to stop, you know, doing these things. But if you give your cat a toy, or even better, a scratching post, you know, it might stop doing some of the things you don't want it to do. So with training, with practice, we give the mind a toy. Here, notice the breath coming in. And this is a toy that keeps on giving, because initially it may not be that interesting to the mind, but pretty soon, you know, if we're... If we're devoted enough to the toy, so that means the mind is secluding itself. It's not doing anything else but knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out. It starts to feel the effect of seclusion. It's feeling the effect of not doing those other things the attention would otherwise be paying attention to. So a sense of collectedness, non-distractedness not being caught up in thought. It's a real altered state. It's a vacation from our mind being lost in its thoughts about things. And it just develops. That's what I meant about the gift that keeps on giving. It just becomes the happiness and the sort of qualities of happiness, the qualities that arise as the seclusion becomes more persistent, more consistent, more developed. And then a, a dispassion arises, which is basically the feeling, I'm actually kind of content being with the breath. I'm dispassionate about whatever else I might do with my attention right now. Sure, I could worry about this or think about that or fantasize, but I don't need to. That's the dispassion. And then the cessation is points to those moments when the mind has completely, for moments, abandoned. You know, because the mind isn't just one thing. So there are a lot of, you know, patterns, forces in the mind. But when all of the mind gets its act together, all the different sort of patterns, forces, and it's all about being with the breath, being in the moment, or even as it refines, being with the sense of calm, being with the sense of ease, the sense of joy, the sense of peace. That's a unified mind. That means the mind is all working together. It's not dissipated, not trying to do different things. It's just all together in that experience. And so that's cessation and letting go, right? The mind has let go of everything except this one thing and even this one thing like in deeper states in order to really be with that thing you even have to be you have to let go of being with it the idea or the sense of being with it even that so the, the letting go really points to like dropping into in like absorption we call it or a jhana is where the mind stops trying to concentrate on the object, right? It has to relax in, absorb in, fall in to the object. So the last thing, the persistence, like in more technical terms in concentration practice, we call it connecting and sustaining. So that part of the attention that has this idea of I'm connecting and I'm sustaining my attention here, even that is too rough for a, a more profound kind of settling, stabilizing of the mind. But let me leave it here. It might be nice to hear from a few folks, just your own, both during the week and uh, months, years, but also tonight's sit. And uh, you probably some of you recognized at least some of the instructions were based on the initial instructions from the Anapanasati Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness of Breathing any reflections about causes for the arising of tranquility and i sent last week the sutta on feeding and starving or feeding and weakening of the factors any thoughts and we'll have time to share in our small groups too but or questions
0: um, so mine's kind of simple, but it was, um, as I was, I found myself thinking and I was like thinking, and then I heard tranquility and I realized for me, that meant thanking my thinking mind th- because it's really serving thanking my thinking mind, Thanking or thanking it. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thinking brain. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> as opposed to, Oh, I'm thinking again. That's thinking. It was like, thank you. And then I could, that felt like tranquility to me. Somehow I just, and I just, then I could move away from it a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of
1: skillful ways to, in that transition from being caught in thought to coming back to present moment awareness, but all of the skillful means have a kind touch, Mm -hmm. and so it just sounds like the, you know, your particular skillful means in that case, that was your way for your mind to not be abrupt, not be mean, not be sort of forceful, but to just, yeah, thought, I see you. (laughs) Other thoughts about stabilizing and touching tranquility? Yeah, Raha, please. Wait for the mic, though, Raha. Most of you know we record... So it's not just so we can all hear you, although that's part of it, but it also then allows people who are going to listen at home to hear your comments.
2: So um, it feels like, for example, if I'm trying to get rid of craving, the mechanism to let go is just observe the craving. As soon as you start observing, then somehow the identification drops and you become the third person, right? Right. So what that's the that last thing you said. You you become like when you are angry as soon as you observe yourself being angry you're not that angry person anymore you're the observer. The observer, yeah. Okay. So you become the third person rather than one of the two who are they are angry at each other. Yeah. That's so that one comes easy for me um feeling I'm the third person I'm the observer. But Because there is something that I'm sure of. There's anger, there's craving, there's something that I can see, then as soon as I see it, I can drop the identification. But I'm not sure if I see the tranquility.
1: Yeah. And well, because sometimes we're just busy putting out the fires. But here's the thing. Remember, when the Buddha talks about right effort, he talks about preventing... um, like the worry from arising or the anger from arising, abandoning abandoning the unwholesome qualities that have arisen, developing the wholesome qualities and maintaining them. So when we're connecting and sustaining with something like the breath, we could spend a lot of time putting out fires, abandoning the unwholesome, and like just that move that you described, Raha, realizing that the awareness of the anger is not angry, right? Is a way to sort of diffuse the mind's clinging to the anger or the mind's identification with the anger. But remember the other ways, right? Being really proactive, being really in a beautiful way devoted to feeling the breath coming in and really devoted to feeling the breath going out, really taking it as an anchor for the attention. We don't sometimes do this because in our attempts we used the wrong kind of effort, we got really tight or there was greed involved, but we can learn to do it skillfully, right? We can learn to connect, like in the same way when I'm petting my cat or you know, when you're touching your lover or you're with a you know, a baby, you're holding a baby, or you're comforting a child that's distressed, you know, we know how to really show up and stay connected. We can do that with any object, including the breath. So if we're really, this is what prevention is, really. It's like doing, giving the mind something really wholesome to do and doing it with a whole enough heart, a wholeheartedness, that we don't have to worry about anger arising. There's really no space in the mind for anger to arise. So make sure this week that you really don't, if you find yourself putting out fires, you're always looking at the hindrances. Um, maybe instead of, you you might be in the habit of looking for the hindrances. And it might be that you can just have a really beautiful relationship with some object It's there in the moment. Whole body awareness, breath. And just really work on that lovely, beautiful relationship that awareness has with the object. And really appreciate it. Right, This mudita aspect is really important that we're appreciating the development of these wholesome qualities. Because that means we're actually seeing them. And if you read that sutta on feeding and and starving is the word that gets translated but I know some people don't like that word starving the you know how we starve the wholesome qualities. Basically the way we feed them is we notice them. I mean there's some nuance, more nuance than that but whether it's investigation or e- efforting energy or joy or tranquility or concentration or equanimity it's learning how to recognize them. That's why I was suggesting one thing to do at least once a week in your sit, if not more than once a week, is take it takes some time too, so it might be a good part of your set, and just practice recognizing each of the seven factors, even if they're quite feeble or in just a seed-like state, not fully developed. That's okay. But train your mind to recognize them. It really builds confidence that those qualities are there. And then the other thing you'll notice is when you do recognize it, it gets stronger. So learning to see it and appreciate it is how we feed these qualities. We're literally befriending the experience of tranquility. And not just in our sets, we can notice that like, you know, the metaphors or similes that are used in the, the tradition is like being in a really hot sun, like you might experience in India, and then getting into the shade. Or being really hot and then there's a cool rain. Or wearing a heavy backpack and taking it off. Or one that I um, appreciate from you know my early adult years doing a lot of backpacking is Sometimes you're in really windy place and you know you get used to it the wind sort of buffeting you and then you kind of go on the other side of a, a range or something and it's gone and you don't realize how harassing it was being in the wind until you're not in it anymore it just feels so nice or if you're you know on the seashore and it's windy 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 and then you come inside it's like oh i didn't realize how agitated so that's the feeling of tranquility is the, the mind's not being harassed you know how it is like when you think you got to figure something out you really and then all of a sudden you realize I don't really need to figure this out you know it's just like some problem the mind picked up but I don't need to know I don't need to decide and it's like such a relief to be willing to put it down. Any last comment about tranquility, about your sets, about the instructions? Yeah, Roger, please.
0: I'll say a comment about uh, experience and then a question. Um, So, yeah, this morning I was uh, driving to a job, and I just felt a lot of elation and buoyancy and so forth. And every now and then that comes up, and so I was reflecting on that because I don't know you know when those you know could happen but um over the weekend um i had some pretty good sits and you know we did our our sacred chanting on saturday and and a meditation group and then this morning a meditation and and it just sometimes just arises and uh so i turned the radio off and i just took delight in you know looking out the window and that kind of thing so um I don't think it's something that, and I guess that's part of my question that you can make happen, you know, when it arises in your daily life, I guess, but when it does to kind of embrace that opportunity and and uh, let it bloom, I guess, you know
1: Well you may not know how you got there, but in that moment where you you're noticing that the heart is delighting, right so there's rapture, some rapture and joy. What you can definitely learn right in that moment is what feeds it and what starves it, right? Just by observing, you know, how you throw, how you weaken it. how it, Yeah, or by just the fact that you recognize it, you might have noticed a bump up in the intensity of the joy just in appreciating that there was joy in the mind, right? You probably had a rush. And then... The interesting thing is to sustain your interest. I mean, that's the challenge, rather. The challenging thing is to sustain your interest. Because the mind, uh, there's a very deep habit in the mind when it's in a good place to stop being interested. There's a deep unconscious assumption that when I'm in a good place, I don't have to practice. I practice to get in a good place. So we're retraining the mind that when it's in a good place, we want to sustain the awareness Because how do we know there could be even a nicer place, a more refinement, which of course, you know, Roger, you know from the more buoyant, joyful state, the mind settles down beyond that to much more refined qualities of happiness. There's something else I was going to say, um, too. Let's see if I can get back to it. Oh, yeah, just in terms of, you know, general causes. You know, in hindsight, we can kind of see what, like there might have been a memory that came to mind. And this is sort of the interesting thing generally in our practice is to see that the idea that I, you know, I am the mood I have right now, that's a very, not a very useful um idea of how the mind works. And the more we have these experiences and we identify or recognize these experiences where there just all of a sudden is joy or there is tranquility or insight is that there are these wormholes, right? There's always It's always lawful. There are always causes and conditions. But the mind is much more nimble than we normally think because we think of ourselves as this sort of static edifice. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a more mundane state of mind and then a more refined state of mind. Like, I had to do something. We have these stories that, you know, I didn't make that happen, so how could that have happened? So, to in, in the reflection, like even in hindsight, to bring some confidence that there were causes for joy to arise, right? Generally, the persistence, like one teacher said recently about that transition from uh, persistence to joy, is it's like, it's the persistence, it's the heart's willingness to persist, meaning persist in doing what's skillful, persist in relating to the present moment in a skillful way. And it like burns off the inertia, you know, the the heaviness of the mind. Basically, it burns away all the ideas that our mind is more dense than it actually is. And then the mind starts to experience the mind not being so dense. That's really the experience of joy, right? It's buoyant, it's light, and it's like everything's in motion. That's part of that experience of rapture and joy, that, that the Sense doesn't matter what the mind is knowing, but the sense is it's alive with movement, it's in motion, and that's delightful that everything's because all of a sudden the idea of things being dense, way down, having inertia has evaporated, has been burnt away, precisely because of the dedicated, persistent application of the mind to what the mind investigation has seen is helpful. So that's where the dedication comes from, right? So the seed, the feeding of the investigation is there's a difference between the mind applying itself in a skillful or an unskillful way and that inspires dedicated effort, persistence. Oh, there's a difference. I'm going to apply my mind in a way that I think will really lead to positive results. And that burns the inertia, and then there's the fruit, there's joy. And the interesting thing about joy is that, because uh, think of the second half of the factors, so these are the tranquilizing halves, so tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, that's what we'll do the next two weeks, these three. They're like Roger suggested, we don't do directly tranquility, we don't do directly concentration, equanimity, even joy, these are the natural unfolding of causes that have been set in motion, right? And so we see, but we can learn the natural dynamic, and learning the dynamic, learning how causality works here is going to strengthen the pattern, right? Recognizing the pattern strengthens it, and... um, Oh, what was that point? From tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Oh yeah, yeah. So the, I, a really important way to reflect on your mind, to study your mind in this transition of joy to tranquility, concentration, which really means that the, sort of uh, a more profound stabilizing stilling is a good word, quieting is a good word of the mind, right? And then that deeper quiet, allowing for equanimity to arise, is to really understand it as the habit, the very persistent habit of craving, desiring, goes away. And see, you really see, because when we're feeling that delighting, the mind is so appreciative of the delighting it forgets its habit of wanting something to happen, right? Because what's happening is good enough. In fact, it's great. So why would that habit arise? The habit of wanting something to happen arises when the mind is not happy, not delighted. But when the mind is delighted, the habit of wanting goes away. And see, that's how we make the, how the mind makes that transition from being really energized, as it is when there's a lot of rapture, a lot of buoyancy, a lot of joyful interest, to the ease of tranquility. Ah. And then the stilling, the quieting of the mind, it's like a peace. And then the sort of, chilled out like the mind that doesn't need anything from experience that's equanimity the mind isn't looking to experience to get anything so it's equanimous about the sense experiences whether they're internal like memory sensation or external sights and sounds the mind is well, its just stuff happening, it's just stuff being known it's equanimous Because its sort of craving has been sated through the process of joy, tranquility, and then the peace of concentration. So really get interested, like look, when there's a lot of buoyancy, a lot of joy, look just notice I don't want anything. There's no mind wanting anything right now. I'm I'm totally content being aware of the delighting and the joy and the expansive, buoyant feeling in the heart, body, mind. And because, you know, as that joy persists and the habit of wanting something keeps getting sort of extinguished, ceasing, ceases, then it triggers tranquility. It's like the mind recognizes the absence of craving. And it feels it like this. Ah, oh, like a backpack has been taken off, like we've been in the wind for decades and we step out of the wind. We've been in the hot, blazing sun, and now we're in the cool shade. It's a real shift. But the mind has to recognize. And this is, you know, it's interesting about rapture because it can be irritating, just the sort of the bright, buoyant after a while. And so Because the the mind has to make this transition. It's a a little insight where the mind goes from its, in a sense, its fixation on the, the, the delighting, the joy, the rapture, the buoyancy, the expansiveness. It's looking at that, it's noticing that to noticing what's not there because there was all this delighting. Like, oh, craving has gone away right and so now the the tranquilizing factors you know when we talk about it as a linear development so then in tranquility we're noticing the absence of craving you know in a relative sense and stillness is just the maturing of the mind where there hasn't been much craving or no craving for a while that's literally how the deep the deepest state of concentration would In the tradition is called the fourth jhana, it's just defined as a mind where craving is not active at all in the mind. That's the piece of the fourth jhana. There's no craving. There's no activity, structured activity in the mind wanting anything, including wanting that state to persist. There's no wanting at all. That's the definition of that state. And that's as quiet as the mind gets, right? The mind without craving. So it's a little taste, a temporary taste of liberation when we have a deeper um, touching into concentration. Let me just go before we break into small groups because this might trigger some conversation in your small groups. These are partly from um, Jack Kornfield and partly from the suttas, these causes for tranquility. First from Jack Kornfield. This is uh, from the book Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And the, you know it comes out of the tradition too. But because remember, tranquility is the mind not doing what it normally does, which is agitating. Most of what the mind does is agitating. Right, So spending time alone is the first thing that Jack Cornfield mentions. And this is so powerful, you know, just to seclude yourself. And if you can seclude yourself in a natural environment, right, where you're around a lot of natural systems, not human-made things, human-designed things, like rooms that have straight lines, it, it has an effect. On the mind. The mind, when I'm out in like walking in the woods or in a more natural setting, my mind doesn't notice messes. But when I'm at common ground and at home, my mind notices messes, like what needs to be fixed, what am I going to do that, and on and on. But we don't think that way when we're out on the seashore or walking through the woods or in a field. We're not as likely to judge wind but anybody who walks by us will judge. Just watch your mind. See if you can look at somebody right now without evaluating them in some way. Oh, I like that. I don't like that. I don't really care about. It. You know that, that person's of interest. Let me look at someone else. right There's always an evaluation going on w- with human-made things in a way that's not true in nature. This is a line from Wendell Berry. Some of you know this. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. And then the third thing Jack Hornfield mentions, going on retreat, just the simplicity of the structure, sitting, walking, practice, freedom from duties and responsibilities, letting go of likes and dislikes, like really challenging the mind around our likes and dislikes. Because this is a game we can play with ourselves, just in the same way I can get really obsessed with my likes and dislikes. What am I going to wear? I don't really like that pair of pants. That one's too tight. You know, That's not a good color for me. Or what am I going to have for breakfast? Yeah, I could eat that. It's good for me, but I really don't want to eat that. I want to eat this. I mean, we're so much of our time, we're dealing in the world of likes and dislikes, and we can just, like, Practice not engaging likes and dislikes. I'm just going to, you know, do what shows up. I'm not going to, what do you want to do? I'll do that. It's kind of a relief to just give ourselves over to something other than I have to figure out what I want to do. I'm sure you've all noticed how oppressive it is to figure out what you want. But it's we, we struggle giving it up, you know, well like I, I, some of you know this, for a long time I would flip a coin. This is like back in the 90s, even before in the 80s. And it was around this issue about like really exploring likes and dislikes. And I'd get to this place, so I'm happy, I don't know, I'm just going to flip a coin. And it was so liberating. I did it about some important things. <laughs> which seems strange to mention, so I won't. <laughs> Doing one thing at a, at a time. He talks about. It's just it's like, talk about seclusion. Like, okay, I'm brushing my teeth, and I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to be thinking about anything else. I'm just going to brush my teeth. I notice sometimes I wander out of the bathroom and look out a window. You know, it's like, no, I can just brush my teeth. I don't have to like. Do something else, like start getting the tea water going, or something like that. (laughs) Letting imperfections be, and a sense of contentment, or serene disenchantment. And then in the tradition, proper food, right? Good climate, basic comfort probably, comfortable posture neither over-enthusiastic nor sloppy, avoiding hot-tempered louts. <laughs> right? Because it's true. I mean, if we're around and choosing to be around calm friends, hot-tempered louts. <laughs> Basically people, you know, who are agitated. Because it we're affected by who we're around. It really matters. When you're around somebody really chilled out. I remember uh, there was this beautiful retreat Place Um, some of you know Point Reyes, north of San Francisco, an hour and a half or so, and the Vedanta Society owned this beautiful land, right bordered, right up on the that uh, national park, Point Reyes or national monument. And uh, I would go out there and do retreats. But the first time I went out there, I had to meet uh, Swami. This is uh, the Vedanta Society was started by Swami Vivekananda, who came to the West back in the. Around the turn of the century, I think in ni- 1896, for the World Conference of, or the Re- World Conference of Religions, or something like that, in Chicago it was a famous gathering, one of the first big gatherings. Anyway, and then he stayed. He started some centers. Had quite an influence, bringing some of the Eastern philosophy to the West. But anyway, um, so I had to meet the like. They wouldn't let just anybody go out there. You had to meet the head Swami. So a monk, in the yogic tradition, and uh, and I walked into his office, and it was like I just got so stoned, so tranquil, just sitting in this person's presence. I mean, I've been around some chilled-out people, but this guy was amazing, and it was like he was just at, he just wanted to make sure I was you know an okay person to sort of let use the space, but it was like. I just want, this is how we feel when we're really tranquil. It's like, we don't want to move. Like you sometimes, after a good sit, it's like, I don't want to get up. I don't care if the bell rang, you know. You just sort of want to stay there. And you don't want to move your body either. There's, like, stillness is not something you're doing. The body just doesn't want to move. And it was interesting, like, he was asking me questions, and I didn't really want to (laughs) answer. I wanted to sort of like, this is really nice. Maybe I'll do my retreat here. <laughs> so it matters, the kind of friends we hang out with. And the seventh is inclining the mind towards peacefulness. Just another way of saying, appreciate like in the same way we can be intensity junkies and want to listen to metal music or watch a really you know a TV show that just has a lot of stimulating things, whether it's violence or sex or intrigue or. You know, whatever it is that stirs the pot, stimulates energy. Because we're kind of in this crash-and-burn lifestyle, most of us, most of the time. So we get dead to the world because we're overstimulated. And then we need these sort of intensity things to recharge, to kind of build the energy back up. And of course, it just perpetuates the crash-and-burn. So instead, we can cultivate a value and interest and what's peaceful, internally and externally. And you know how it is when you walk into a garden or into somebody's space, like I mentioned, this office space that I walked into. You know, we really appreciate the tranquil spots. This is what really beautiful temple design, or through history, people who have designed and developed and maintained spiritual places. I remember going to Ajah Mahabua's monastery in Thailand, a very well-known highly respected monk who died a few years ago in the Thai forest tradition. And, you know, this is after flying from Minneapolis to Bangkok, sleeping in the airport, taking an early flight from Bangkok out to northeastern Thailand, and then this rickety taxi, you know, exposed outside, you're sitting outside, taxi from the city out to this forest monastery. But when I got out of the taxi and just walked in, you just felt the vibe of calm. I mean, it was just like thick. And it's like all of that 40 hours, whatever it was, to get there, it's just like I felt completely good. Not burnt out, not fried, not anything like that. So there are places that have this vibe because it has been instilled in the place and we can pick up. And ideally, that's what we look for in our practice and that's what we create in the little corner of our living room where we sit and why community members have spent so much energy both in building this place, renovating this place and the people who worked cleaning and the building committee to sort of create a really serene spot. I mean as best we can given that we have, you know, 700 or more people coming through the space each week but it's really, you know, designed to help. That's why we don't have a lot of stuff up on the walls. We keep it really simple, because it has an effect on the mind. So these are some of the things you can share in the small group, just how in your own ways, and really analyze it out loud for your small group, you know, how you have seen the causes, how you played and worked with the causes for tranquility in your life. And also be really honest about how you feed the causes for agitation—that how we still remain, all of us to some degree, energy junkies or intensity junkies or agitation junkies, really, to be more honest. Like we like, we feel alive when we're disturbed, and we're—and and this is another interesting thing to share in the small groups—is places where you've noticed a mistrust of calm. Like we sometimes wrongly interpret calm as a kind of flatness, or, or I don't care. It scares us, being tranquil. Well, how am I going to get... It's because it opposes right? that seclusion, because the mind is secluded from its neurotic worries, like getting everything done, getting ahead, becoming somebody. So when we feel really tranquil, we can have sort of... It can provoke... Uh, a response, you know, you got work to do. You you better not. This could be dangerous. Relaxing. (laughs) So that would be really interesting to discuss in your small groups. Basically, because we all have this disease because it's been conditioned by our culture. So it looks like we have maybe around 60, but let's start with 18. You want to start, Tim?